0: I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. In the New Testament, a few books past the Gospels. One of these short letters tucked in the in the New Testament. Began the series last week calling it Called to Freedom. In Christ we have been called to freedom and a particular kind of freedom freedom from something, freedom to something else, that'll all become clearer as we go. Paul is taking pains in this letter to release from his readers the the bonds of, of legalism, the bonds of uh, adding things to the gospel faith in Christ plus fill in the blank. He's very energetic in his denunciation of false gospels and in his insistence upon God's free grace in Christ as the only source and ground of our life and our hope and our salvation. Continue that walk through this book today. If someone asked you to prove the authenticity of your claim to be a Christian what would you say? If your life and Christian witness were under scrutiny and you needed to persuade someone that you truly belong to Jesus Christ and that you live to serve him, what, what might you point them to? What evidences in your life might you mention? What might you ask a critic to consider about your life in order to hopefully come to the conclusion that you are, in fact... An authentic and true follower of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 1, verses 10 through 24, Paul provides a similar defense of himself, of his ministry as an apostle, and of the gospel message that he preaches. And in this section, he provides us with three marks, if you will, of an authentic messenger of the gospel. Three marks of an authentic messenger of the gospel. So just for a little bit of context in the letter, Paul's main aim in chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 14, which is a pretty lengthy section of this short book, his main aim is to defend his authority as an apostle. Because as we mentioned last week, if you discredit the messenger, you call into question the message. And these false teachers in the churches in Galatia have arisen and begun to teach a different gospel. They've begun to add some things to what people had to do in order to be acceptable to God. And they might say, well, that's not what Paul said. And so they're going, yeah, 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 but Paul doesn't know the whole story or Paul's leaving part of this out. He's only given you a a half gospel. And so Paul is making efforts here to demonstrate his authority to be a messenger of the true gospel. He wants to be very sure that the Galatians regard his message as authoritative. And so he takes pains in this section of the letter to demonstrate the divine origin of his gospel and of his divinely appointed role as its messenger. So we will look today at one, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 24. So kind of the end of chapter 1. And the first three verses here, chapter, verses 10 through 12, are sort of a thesis statement for this section of the letter. In verse 10, Paul insists that his goal is and has been to serve Christ, not to please man. In verses 11 and 12, he indicates that his desire to serve Christ has led him to preach God's gospel rather than man's gospel. And then in verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 14, Paul shares his personal experience He talks of his conversion to faith in Christ, his appointment as an apostle, his early ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles, uh, and his interactions with the other apostles as further proof that his ministry is from God, his message is from God, and thus his gospel is trustworthy and true. So later in the letter, he's going to hammer what that gospel is, exactly what it entails. But at this point, what he's trying to do is demonstrate his credibility his authority as a divinely appointed messenger of the gospel. And so we see in these verses today three marks of an authentic messenger of the gospel. They are, I'll give them to you quickly, and then that'll be the sort of outline we'll follow. Number one, the approval he seeks. Number two, the grace he's received. And number three, the glory he advances. The approval he seeks, the grace he's received, and the glory he advances. Let's read I will read for you, just follow along, verses 10 through 24 of Galatians chapter 1. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. May God bless his word to us this morning. The first mark of an authentic messenger of the gospel is the approval that he seeks. And there is a dichotomy here between seeking the approval of man or the approval of God. And so there's a principle here. He, he puts in opposition fearing man and serving Christ. If you're in the market for a life verse... Right, One of those verses of scripture that sort of characterizes what you want your life to be about, what you want to, to be, who you are at the deepest core of your being. You could do a lot worse than Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Rhetorically, of course, Paul expects us to answer these questions in the negative. Am I seeking the approval of man? No Am I trying to please man? No He wants us to see a true dichotomy That is two realities that are diametrically opposed to one another between pleasing man and pleasing God If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ Which means that serving Christ requires us to crucify our fear of man. We must choose. Proverbs 29, verses 25 and 26. It's just verse 25. It says, the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. We often get that exactly backwards We often think what we need for safety and security is to be well thought of by our peers What we need is for the people in authority over me to think that i'm a good worker Right We think there's safety in what other people think of us and god says the exact opposite is true Safety is not found in what other people think of you. That's a trap. That's a snare where you're safe is when you trust the Lord. Fear of man is a huge and persistent issue in the lives of sinners like us. We fear man when we believe we are unsafe because of the power or sway that other people have. We fear man when we feel the need to meticulously curate our image and reputation so that others will think well of us. We fear man when we shrink back from uncomfortable conversations or actions because we think people's responses may be hazardous to our well-being somehow. If I say the truth, they're going to get mad at me. That's going to make me feel bad, and I don't want to feel bad. So I'm not going to tell the truth. That's fearing man. We fear man when we are inclined to mask our true thoughts and feelings with a veneer of, Politeness. We're in the South. You know it. Because we can't stomach the prospect of making another person uncomfortable. If the worst thing you can imagine is for someone you care about to criticize or correct you, you are living in the fear of man. And when you are living in the fear of man, you will not be able to faithfully serve Christ. That's what Paul is saying here if you are fearing man you won't serve christ believe me i get it causing emotional discomfort to someone is one of my least favorite things to do personally in order to help me sort of face that fear and conquer that fear of man god sent me into pastoral ministry where i get to make people uncomfortable on the regular But sometimes taking the action or offering the word that causes some discomfort or unease to someone else is precisely what serving Christ requires. And in those moments, we have to choose: will I please man or will I serve Christ? Jesus himself said, You can't serve two masters. Don't get me wrong, we should respect people but we should not fear them. Well, that's the principle of fearing God rather than man that he lays out for us in verse 10. But Paul has a very specific application of that principle in mind in this letter. He's not just speaking generically about serving Christ rather than people. He means to show that because his heart's desire is to serve Christ, it leads him to a particular action, namely preaching the true gospel. So that's what flows out from verse 10. He says, if, if I were seeking to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And verse 11 says, for, right? So this is evidence now of what he just said. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. If Paul were seeking to please man, he would preach man's gospel. He would preach a man-centered gospel. He would give a, pers- a people-friendly message. But he's not trying to please man he's trying to serve christ and so he preaches the gospel that christ revealed to him that's how this connects so if you see that he says the gospel i preach to you is not man's gospel how do we know that he says i didn't receive it from any man i didn't attend a church service and somebody preached the gospel and i heard it that way i didn't go to coffee with an older person in the faith who told me about the gospel I received it by a direct revelation from Jesus Christ, and he's speaking here of his conversion experience on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. I did not receive it from any man, but by a revelation from Jesus Christ. It's not man's gospel. There's a Rich Mullins song called Creed, based on the Apostles' Creed, and he says in the course of that song, I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it, It is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. That's what Paul is after here. I'm not telling you things that you want to hear. I'm not tickling your ears, so to speak. I'm preaching what God gave me to preach. One way the Galatians can be sure that Paul's gospel is authentic and from God is that it is not a man-friendly message. When he says the gospel he preaches is not man's gospel, he means it did not originate with any human being. And one way that is self-evidently true is that the gospel he preaches is inherently offensive to human pride and self-righteousness. It's not a gospel that people would make up because it starts with, you are helplessly ruined and lost and spiritually dead and need someone else to rescue you. That's not a man-friendly gospel. Martin Luther, the famous German reformer, said this in his commentary in this passage. We, no man can say that we are seeking the favor and praise of men with our doctrine. We teach that all men are naturally depraved. We condemn man's free will, his strength, wisdom, and righteousness. We say that we obtain grace by the free mercy of God alone for Christ's sake. This is no preaching to please men this sort of preaching procures for us the hatred and disfavor of the world, persecutions, excommunications, murders, and curses. And Luther himself faced the threat of all of those things in his efforts to preach the true gospel. Church, we must purpose in our hearts today whether we will serve Christ or fear man. In what we say Or don't say. In what we stand for. Or don't stand for. In what we tolerate. And what we won't tolerate. We will either please Christ. Or man. We cannot serve two masters. Where God has spoken. We must speak. Even if it means hatred and opposition from the world. Friend, the only opinion of you that truly counts is God's. And if you're in Christ, His opinion of you is clear and it's settled. He loves you. He receives you. He welcomes you. He delights in you. You are His And because you are safe in his heart, you can step into uncomfortable places for the glory of God and seek to please him alone rather than people. Because even if that friend rejects you, he will never reject you. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Paul's efforts to defend the divine origin of his gospel message continue in the next section, where he speaks of his own conversion to faith in Christ as proof that he is authorized by God to carry out his ministry. So in verses 13 through 17, we see the second mark of an authentic messenger of the gospel, the grace he's received. The approval he seeks is the approval of God alone. The second mark is the grace that he has received Let's look together again at at verses 13 through 17. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So he's going to look backward at how bad he was and start to demonstrate what God did to radically transform him. Paul's story is a powerful example of, of what really is the true story of all Christians. Even if the details of your story are different and feel a little less dramatic, receiving God's free grace in Christ leads to a transformed life. And so Paul's conversion functions in this letter as proof that his gospel is from God. So speaking of his former life in Judaism and his persecution of the church of God, that's well documented in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 7, Paul Presided over, gave approval to uh, the killing of a Christian minister named Stephen. He was guarding the coats of the men who were throwing stones at Stephen until he died. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we're told Saul, that's just the Jewish name of Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Bro is going to church meetings. And dragging people away in chains and imprisoning them. In Acts chapter nine, verses one and two, it says, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he received authorization from the high priest to go to the synagogues in Damascus, the town up the road aways, and it says, if he found any belonging to the way, that is, those who were following Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Presumably for some kind of a trial, but we know how the high priests conducted their trials. We saw how it turned out for Jesus. Probably wouldn't have worked out too well for these brothers and sisters in the Lord either. So Paul is actively terrorizing the church of Jesus Christ. That's the life that he was living. Why? Is it because he was a jerk? No, it's because he thought of himself as serving God. He thought of himself as such a, uh, a good Pharisee. Such a righteous person that this is just what it required. If I'm going to be faithful to God, I'm going to have to snuff out the threat of this Christian stuff. And so he speaks in verse fourteen of his exemplary Pharisaism. Right? He says, "I was uh, excelling beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Right? If anyone were going to be saved by his Pharisaism, Paul is like that. Would have been me. I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Hebrew of Hebrews." right as the most jewish you could get the most passionate you could be about imposing applying the law of god upon people so if the galatians were tempted to believe a false gospel of adding jewish religious observance to their faith in christ paul's personal story is a perfect rebuttal he was exemplary among his generation more zealous than all of them in terms of his earnest pursuit of law-based righteousness. And yet that zealous pursuit did not make him right with God. Indeed, it led him to violently persecute the very people that God was redeeming through his son. Hard to imagine being farther from God than that, on the exact opposite side of his mission. So he sets the table masterfully to be able to say, if you think law-keeping will make you right with God. I've got some news for you. Because I was doing it pretty well. And I was as far from God as it's possible to be. But, verse 15. But, when, and then we have phrase after phrase in this verse that point us to nothing but God's free, sovereign grace. Look at this but when he who set me apart before I was born. I didn't know anything about what I was going to be or do or what the mission of my life was going to be. I wasn't even born yet. God set me apart before I was born, says Paul, just because he chose to. It's just God's free choice. When he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace That's again that inward, effectual call, the Spirit of God drawing sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. So he's saying, I wasn't looking for him. He called me. He called me by the grace of Christ. And he was, verse 16, pleased to reveal his son to me. Again, Paul's not looking for Jesus, Paul is on the road to Damascus to persecute Jesus' people. But God was pleased to reveal his son to him. Hey, Paul, stop. Here's Christ. Here's this Jesus you haven't been looking for. One of my favorite movies is Forrest Gump. There's the line where Lieutenant Dan finds him later in life, and he says, Gump, have you found Jesus yet? And he said, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him. I love that line. Nobody's looking for him. Paul wasn't looking for him. Who's the seeker? It's Jesus, right? He said that to Zacchaeus. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The one that's seeking people out is Christ. Paul was not seeking Him out. He wasn't looking. God was pleased to interrupt Paul and reveal His Son to him. It was just that simple. That's why Paul gets saved, because God interrupted him and showed him Christ, period. In order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. So there's a mission. There's a purpose. There's a calling that God has in mind for Paul set him apart before he was born, called him by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to him so that he might go and preach this gospel that he was trying to destroy to the Gentiles. This is just insane, ridiculous grace from God. And Paul's life could not be more topsy-turvy, flipped absolutely upside down. He goes from a terrorist of the church to an evangelist for the church. God saved Paul because he was pleased to do so. God overcame all of Paul's anti-gospel zealotry and converted him to faith in Christ and then appointed him as a missionary because it was his pleasure to do so. And what pleased God was to transform a religious terrorist into a Christian evangelist. Friends, this awareness should have two effects on us. Number one, it should fill our hearts with humble gratitude that God set his saving love upon us, that he overcame all our sins and all our objections to the gospel and saved us, not because we were so smart or good-looking or morally upright, but because it was his pleasure to do so. That's Paul's story, and it's your story too if you're in Christ. Praise God. Number two, it should fuel our witness to and our prayers for unbelievers in our lives. There is no stone-cold hardness of heart, no deep-seated entrenchment in sin and rebellion that can't be overcome by God's grace in the gospel if he is pleased to save someone if he can turn the most zealous Pharisee Christian, anti-Christian terrorist into the premier missionary of the Christian faith, then your friend, your family member, your loved one who has spent years and years and years in hardened, unrepentant sin, who rejects God and has no time for it, is not too far from the grace of God in Christ if God chooses to set his love upon them. So plead with God save him save her and speak this gospel god can save paul's delay to visit jerusalem is the next thing he points to as proof that his ministry is from god because he says after this interruption after this radical conversion this transformation that happened i did not immediately go up to jerusalem to meet with the other apostles I would have made a certain kind of sense right oh well now that i'm an apostle and i'm like an evangelist for this gospel i guess i should go meet with the other people who were apostles first and kind of get their approval get their blessing make sure that i'm saying the same thing right he doesn't do that in fact it says for three years he doesn't do that he spends three years in arabia doing ministry probably also i imagine reflecting, studying, hearing directly from the Lord, kind of foundations of his faith that he's going to carry to these churches. So he does three years' worth of ministry before he ever decides it's probably time to go to Jerusalem and meet the other apostles. That's pretty bold. You might think it sounds arrogant or something, but I don't think that's the case. I think he was just so confident that who he had seen was the risen Lord Jesus, and that was who his commission came from, that he didn't need to go and seek the approval of men. Remember? I'm not seeking the approval of men. I'm seeking the approval of God. I'm not trying to please men, I'm trying to serve Christ. So he appointed me as a missionary. I'm going. I'm gonna go preach the gospel. I'm gonna go start churches. Going to Jerusalem, I'll get there. Right? Sure, I'll meet Peter someday, but I don't need to do that right away. When God graciously revealed Christ to him, he went away for three years. And if he were trying to please man, or if his message really weren't from God, after his Damascus Road experience, he likely would have gone straight to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there for, his instru- for their instruction and affirmation. But he waits. Why? Because the gospel he preaches is not man's gospel. I don't need a man to tell me, yeah, you got it right. It's not man's gospel. It doesn't belong to Peter. Doesn't belong to James. Doesn't belong to the apostles. It's God's gospel. It's Christ's gospel. He doesn't need the apostles' approval because God gave him his message directly. And so, the second mark of an authentic messenger of the gospel is the grace he has received. Namely, his life is transformed because God set his love upon him. Verses 18 to 24, we see the third mark of an authentic messenger of the gospel, and it's the glory he advances. The glory he advances. It would be very easy for Paul to sort of toot his own horn, to tout his own glory, but that's not what he does. In verses 18 to 24, he tells the story of his visit to the apostles in Jerusalem when he eventually does get around to it. Uh, He says he went there to visit Peter, and he mentions James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, but he not, doesn't seem as though he'd spent substantial time with James. He said, I saw no other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. right? So he spent some time with Peter, and he mentions at least that he saw James, the brother of Jesus. And he only spends 15 days with them, apparently. He didn't spend a long time. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to, to visit Cephas. By the way, Cephas is just the Aramaic form of Peter's name, it means rock, just like Petros means rock in Greek. So. Paul used Cephas and Peter interchangeably in this letter, so just to help you not be confused by that. So he remained with them for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And he emphasizes this in what I'm writing to you before God. I do not lie, right? Because he wants them to be very clear. This is not a gospel that I'm preaching just because Peter and James told me what to say. I didn't even see them for three years, and I was only with them for 15 days. This is not their gospel. It's God's. And then he went into the regions of syria and cilicia and just continued his ministry into syria and cilicia and just continued in gentile regions all you need to know for now about syria and cilicia is that it's a good bit north of judea the area where jerusalem is and so he says there that i went back into syria and cilicia because he didn't hang out in jerusalem he says i was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea because he hadn't spent significant time there. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Well, what's the point of highlighting that? I think he's trying to illustrate that to that point in his gospel ministry, he did not have a personal relationship with churches in and around Jerusalem. His influence had been further north and westward in Gentile areas as God had commissioned him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he hasn't had much interpersonal interaction with the Judean churches. But here's what's cool about that. In verse 22, when he says, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they only were hearing it said. So they didn't know me personally. We didn't have a relationship. But they were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith He once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So, even though they don't know Paul, his story is getting around. The terrorist-turned-evangelist narrative has made the rounds in Judea, and the Christians there are rejoicing. But notice what they're not doing. They're not bragging on Paul They're not making Paul out to be something special. They're not caught up in hero worship or celebrity gossip about Paul. What are they doing? They're glorifying God because of him. The fourth century preacher John Chrysostom said of this text, he does not say, they marveled at me, they praised me, they were struck with admiration of me, but he attributes all to grace. They glorified God, he says, in me. Why would they praise God? Why would they be glorifying God for Paul's radical transformation, all the good ministry that he is now doing for the church of Jesus Christ? Because it was the doing of God's free grace in Christ. They recognize terrorist turned evangelist, that's somebody else's doing. That story takes a divine author. That points to the work of God in his life. And so we don't go, hooray Paul, what a great guy. We go, what a great God that he would save such as that. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Same kind of thing. He doesn't want people to see our good works and go, man, those people are so great. He wants people to see our good works and go, Wow, who do you know? Who do you serve? I want to know him. right? He's looking for glory to God through the works of righteousness and love that his church carries out. And that's what's going on here. Paul's good works are a testimony not to Paul's goodness, but to God's grace. And so it's God who gets the glory. The glory that is advanced in Paul's life and ministry is not his own, but that of his Father in heaven. So the third mark of an authentic messenger of the gospel is that he advances not his own glory, but the glory of God. What about you? Whose glory is advanced in your life? What story are you spotlighting in your words, actions, social media posts, conversations? acts of service? What's the narrative you hope will make the rounds in your church, in your city, in your community? Do you hope that it will result in people praising you, honoring you, celebrating you? Or is your heart's desire that your life will resound to the praise of the glory of God because of the abundant evidence of His grace at work in your broken, imperfect life. Friends, that's where we should reside. That should be the hope to which we cling, the prayer that we pray, Lord, let my life somehow resound to your glory, not to my own. Listen, when you choose to serve Christ rather than fear man, the glory of God is advanced in your life. When your life is transformed by the power of grace, in the gospel, when you forsake sin and trust in his promises, the glory of God is advanced. When your life is poured out in acts of service, evangelism, and kingdom building ministry, the glory of God is advanced. No one demonstrated this better than Jesus himself, who despised the shame of the cross. And made Himself nothing for the sake of doing the will of His Father. He was so committed to the glory and will of His Father that He took everything that came His way. He willingly went to suffering in our place. He willingly took upon Himself our sin and unrighteousness, that He might pay the penalty that we deserve to pay, that He might become a curse for us, as Paul will say later in this very book. Because He feared God rather than men and sought to advance His glory, you have a substitute who stood in your place. You have a Savior who died for your sake you have a savior who has risen from the dead and defeated death and hell forever and invites all who will come to him in simple faith don't bring me your list of religious observance don't bring me your spiritual resume look how many times i went to church look how much money i tithed look how many old ladies i helped across the street he doesn't care that doesn't earn you anything with him You come to him and you say, I fall on grace. I cling to the cross of Jesus Christ and that's it. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, he went home justified. Friends, this is the gospel that we know. This is the God who we serve. And if you have not given your life over to him, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, Alone as the source of your salvation and your eternal hope. Do it today. Turn your heart toward God. Invite Him into your life. We would love to talk with you about that. If you have questions about it or not sure what next step to take, find one of our members, one of our elders. We would love to help you with that. The gospel we preach is not man's gospel. And if we were seeking to please men... It'll look a lot different. The kinds of things that we would do, the kinds of things that we would say, be pretty different than what it looks like right now, wouldn't it? But friends, this is the gospel that he has chosen to save sinners with. This is the foolishness. First Corinthians chapter one. This is the folly that he has chosen to up in the wisdom of the world. To say, I save people. Not through their own acts of moral goodness, but through my sheer grace. Because I set my love upon them. Friends, let's commit ourselves to believe, live in, and proclaim that gospel alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. It is so refreshing to be reminded of the gospel that you have given to us. Lord, we thank You for examples like the Apostle Paul. Men whose lives were so diametrically opposed to Your heart and Your mission. Who were radically transformed because You interrupted them in grace and were pleased to reveal Your Son. And we thank You that that's the case in our lives. That You have been pleased to reveal Christ. Christ to us and we pray Lord that you would cause our hearts to long for the glory of our Father more than our own that you would cause people to take the right size in our eyes that you would take the right size in our eyes Lord that we would fear you and not men that we would seek to serve Christ and not to please people. Lord, we want to love people. We want to respect people. We want to honor people, but we want only to fear you. We pray that you would make that a reality increasingly day by day and send us in your grace, in the power of your spirit, to preach this gospel to those in our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and our city and around the world. For the glory of Jesus Christ, the advancing of his kingdom, and we pray in his name. Amen.